You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. today possible and who not only had the vision in 1969 and I remember Oakley telling me that was the summer of the moon landing and he also described that it was the summer that they decided to hike up to the falls up Squaw Creek um, to look at the full moon that night to see if they could see the men on it and it was a lovely story a story that I recounted to Malcolm Margolin who just laughed and laughed when he heard it and then after Oakley finished the story, and I thought, and you ran the writing conference that year too? You know, They were doing a lot of things that summer that makes all of this possible, but they also did the hard work in the 40 years that followed that sustained this. A lot of things start, and they don't thrive like we do here at Squaw. And um, it's due to Oakley and Barbara Hall and the Hall family. So, And Diana and Blair and all those people. Thank you, Brett. I, I'm reading up here without notes. So. Where is Diana? There is Diana, yes. So, um, I will say less because the books will say more. And um, I hope you enjoy it. After me, everyone will be more reliable. Is it okay? I'm going to read for you a poem by Toy Derricott, who I have known now for 30 years, an extraordinary poet. This poem is In Knowledge of Young Boys. It is actually being published this year in the Library of America edition, Poems from the Women's Movement, edited by Honor Moore, In Knowledge of Young Boys. I knew you before you had a mother, when you were newt-like swimming a horrible brain in water. I knew you when your connections belonged only to yourself, when you had no history to gone to. Barnacle, when you had no sustenance of metal, when you had no boat to travel, when you stayed in the same place, treading the question. I knew you when you were all eyes and a cocktail, blank as the sky of a mind, a root, neither ground nor placental, not yet red with the cut, nor astonished by pain, one terrible eye open in the center of your head, tonight turning and the stars blinked like a cat. We swam in the last trickle of champagne before we knew breast milk. We shared the night of the closet, the parasitic closing in on our thumbprint. We were smudged in a yellow book, sun, we were oak without mouth, uncut. We were brave before memory. Jim Holiday was a remarkable historian and an absolutely hypnotic public speaker. He gave wonderful talks here at Squaw on several occasions. These are the concluding paragraphs of his history of the California gold rush, The World Rushed In. A place that fostered get-rich-quick materialism at home and encouraged the rifling of treasures wherever they could be found, California aroused the fears of eastern states' preachers, educators, editorial writers. They warned against the temptress with her bawdy ways and social instability. They held California responsible for changing many Americans from conservative, contented citizens, satisfied with a reasonable return on their investment and in toil, to excitable, insatiable speculators who sought to realize on the resources of the universe in a day. Henry David Thoreau epitomized this concern when he declared in 1862, the rush to California reflects the greatest disgrace on mankind, that so many are ready to live by luck 
and so get the means of commanding the labor of others less lucky without contributing any value to society. Few listen to Thoreau and the others, that first generation of California's critics. Their dour judgments and warnings were like whispers against the shouts of success from San Francisco businessmen and Sacramento Valley farmers, stage line and lumber mill operators, clipper ship and riverboat owners, lawyers, quicksilver melters, cattlemen and bankers. These men and thousands more had never heard of Queen Calafia, ruler of an island kingdom. The California they knew looked to the 49ers as heroes of a mythical past, the pan and rocker as symbols of a primitive age. The California they knew had become a place that gave new meaning, even reality, to the most American of myths, the pursuit of happiness. Pace here. Um, good evening. I'm uh, honored to be here alphabetically, the third person. Uh, I'm Michael Carlisle. I'm reading from uh, someone who is not a part of the fabric of uh, Squaw Valley as much as others tonight, but someone who's very much a part of the fabric of American fiction. Her name was Mary Lee Settle. She was a drinking buddy of my father's, which is as good a endorsement. She won the National Book Award. She also founded something that you're all striving for, which is the Penn Faulkner Award. Uh, this is uh, three paragraphs from her last book. She, she, um, she came to me in her 80s and she uh, had been with a publisher and she was changing agents and she said, honey, just tell them I'm not dead yet. <laughs> so not only was she not dead, she wrote three books and this is the last of them. Um, New York, 1939, The Shadow of a War. On my 20th, 21st birthday in the summer of 1939, I danced a Viennese waltz on the St. Regis roof with Prince Serge Obolensky in a black taffeta evening dress that I can still hear faintly. It had been bought for me to wear at proms. I had run away from Sweetbriar in Virginia where my father had insisted I go to fit the genteel dream he had of me. My dreams were otherwise. To remember a time is easy, a compound of past hopes and nostalgia, but to recall oneself in that place, stand in spirit with the sounds, the smells of it, the way the clothes felt on my body is harder. Proust called that veil that must be pierced the gentle resistance of sorry, the gentle resistance of that interposed atmosphere, which is the span of our life and all the poetry of memory. To me, it is an iron gate, hard to force open, when I thrust in, into a place and a time unprepared by fashions, which I took to be truths, expecting the fulfillment of adolescent hopes. I realize now that I had caught the malaise that was in the air and had been since the Depression, which had marked our parents in a way that war was to do later to us. By 1939, we were pretending that it was over at last. We pretended to have enough money, but we were more like Lily Barth in House of Mirth than we were like Myrna Loy in The Thin Man. I'm reading uh, Meditation at Lagunitas by Robert Hass. All the new thinking is about loss. In this, it resembles all the old thinking. The idea, for example, that each particular erases the luminous clarity of a general idea. That the clown-faced woodpecker probing the dead sculpted trunk of that black birch is, by his presence, some tragic falling off from a first world of undivided light. Or the other notion that because there is in this world no one thing to which the bramble of blackberry corresponds, a word is elegy to what it signifies. We talked about it late last night, and in the voice of my friend, there was a thin wire of grief, a tone almost querulous, 
After a while, I understood that talking this way, everything dissolves. Justice, pine, hair, woman, you, and I. There was a woman I made love to, and I remembered how, holding her small shoulders in my hands sometimes, I felt a violent wonder at her presence, like a thirst for salt, for my childhood river with its in island willows, silly music from the pleasure boat, muddy places where we caught the little orange-silver fish called pumpkin seed. It hardly had to do with her. Longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. I, it, I must have been the same to her, but I remember so much the way her hands dismantled bread, the thing her father said that hurt her, what she dreamed. There are moments when the body is numinous as words, days that are the good flesh continuing. Such tenderness those afternoons and evenings, saying blackberry, blackberry, blackberry. I'm reading from Alice Siebold's first book, a memoir called Lucky. This is the first page. In the tunnel where I was raped, a tunnel that was once an underground entry to an amphitheater, a place where actors burst forth from underneath the seats of a crowd, a girl had been murdered and dismembered. I was told this story by the police. In comparison, they said, I was lucky. But at the time, I felt I had more in common with the dead girl than I did with the large, beefy police officers or my stunned freshman year girlfriends. The dead girl and I had been in the same low place. We had lain among the dead leaves and broken beer bottles. During the rape, my eye caught something among the leaves and glass, a pink hair tie. When I heard about the dead girl, I could imagine her pleading as I had and wondered when her hair had been pulled loose from her hair tie, if that was something the man who killed her had done or if, to save herself the pain in the moment, thinking, hoping, no doubt, she would have the luxury to reflect on the ramifications of assisting the assailant later on. She had, on his urging, undone her hair herself. I will not know this, just as I will never know whether the hair tie was hers or whether it, like the leaves, made its way there naturally. I will always think of her when I think of the pink hair tie. I will think of a girl in the last moments of her life. <coughs> This is Richard Ford, my mother in memory. Richard is a great friend of many people here. I have been a Pittsburgh Steeler fan for 62 years, and whenever they lose, the phone rings once, and I know it's Richard. <laughs> this, for your information, is uh, as great an intimacy as certain kinds of men can share. <laughs> so this is my mother in memory. My mother's name was Edna Aiken, and she was born in 1910 in the far northwest corner of the state of Arkansas, Benton County, in a place whose actual location I am not sure of and never have been, near Decatur, or a Centerton, or a town no longer a town, just a rural place. That is near the Oklahoma line there, and in 1910 it was a rough country with a frontier feel. It had only been 10 years since robbers and outlaws were in the landscape. Bat Masterson was still alive and not long gone from a Galena. I remark about this not because of its possible romance, or because I think it qualifies my mother's life in any way I can relate now, because, but because it seems like such a long time ago and such a far off and unknowable place. And yet my mother, 
whom I loved and knew quite well, links me to that foreignness, that other thing that was her life and that I really don't know so much about and never did. This is one quality of our lives with our parents that is often overlooked and so devalued. Parents link us, closeted as we are in our lives, to a thing we're not, but they are. A separateness, perhaps a mystery, so that even together, we are alone. I'm reading from Lee Young Lee's book, The Winged Seed. He's a poet, but this is a memoir. Love, what is night? Is a man thinking in the night, the night? Is fruit ripening in the night, the night? I remember fishing with my sister in the, by the light of paper lanterns, the bamboo jetty at the beach at Ancol. Lying on our stomachs, we peered over the edge down into the seawater and saw below a surface of many tiny waves schools of octopi, their eerie bulb heads glowing. Night is night as is without hands. Night is night even if it's a basin of fire. Night is night though it's tentacle and maelstrom. Night even a bloody custard, the body, dear trough. Even if my hand a possible face, night pass the color of archipelago. Oh, how may I touch you across the chasm of flown things? What won't the night overthrow, the wind unright? Where is the road when the road is carried? What story do we need to hear so late in childhood? This early in the future, roses exact all our windows, night the wound and the way in, night my pink rude thumb stopper and sink, mustard and ache, my club and good yam. The radish king in his red jacket and green embroidered slippers, writing his letter to the queen of the snails, saying, I crave your salty foot. Suffer me a drink from your horn. Night mobile changes. Though night is night, even if it's fever and teaspoons, hobby horse and train track, the train car empty except for our family and two passengers at the other end, a young woman in a trench coat and the baby in her arms wrapped in the piss-sodden pages of a Spiegel catalog. I'm going to read the opening paragraph um, of a memoir by a wonderful writer, Sarah McFadden, and a supreme satirist. Um, this is not satirical. When they were young, my parents believed they were indestructible, so fast and flashy and nothing could touch them. Sai was a lady killer, a small natty man whose riverboat gambler good looks struck women down like lightning bolts. My mother, the former Patricia Montgomery, was a vaudeville dancer, the star of the St. Louis, Louis Municipal Opera in the late 20s. When she married Cy, she turned trick rider in the Rodeo, equivalent of half-time shows. You can take the girl out of showbiz, but you cannot take a little girl from Little Rock or Paragould, which is close enough, and turn her into a house pet. And then I'm going to read just the opening of a wonderful writer, Max Steele, um, now no longer with us. Um, you're going to have, I'm afraid, to imagine this read in a very broad southern accent. <coughs> the hat of my mother. My mother, if she were alive today, would be 90 years old. My father, 100. In the 40 years they were married, my mother spent only one night away from home without him, and that was the day she was kidnapped. To understand how a woman like her could be taken away, you would need to understand how deeply she believed in manners. Manners and courage, she felt, would take one safely through any situation. Once, for instance, during the Depression, a terrible-looking white man, tattooed and scarred, appeared at our back door and demanded food, 
good food, not any cornbread scraps and harmony. He wanted a full meal. My mother stood close to the screen door, locking it while holding her eyes steadily, holding his eyes steadily with hers, and saying, why, certainly, you must come around to the dining room off the side porch. We never serve anyone from the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Good evening. I have the privilege of reading a page from Amy Tan's uh, Bonesetter's Daughter. And Amy Tan, as I'm sure you all know, has been part of the fabric of Squaw Valley for many years and one of the most value, valued writers that we have coming through here, uh, or part of here, I should say. So this is from The Bonesetter's Daughter, the book, and remember, there's also now the opera. For the past eight years, always starting on August 12th, Ruth Young lost her voice. The first time it happened was when she moved into Art's flat in San Francisco. For several days, Ruth could only hiss like an untended tea kettle. She figured it was a virus or perhaps allergies to a particular mold in the building. When she lost her voice again, it was on their first anniversary of living together and Art joked that her laryngitis must be psychosomatic. Ruth wondered whether it was. When she was a child, she lost her voice after breaking her arm. Why was that? On their second anniversary, she and Art were stargazing in the Grand Tetons. According to a park pamphlet, during the peak of the Perseids, around August 12th, hundreds of shooting or falling stars streak the sky every hour. They are actually fragments of meteors penetrating the Earth's atmosphere, burning up in their descent. Against the velvet blackness, Ruth silently admired the light show with art. She did not actually believe that her laryngitis was star-crossed or that the meteor shower had anything to do with her inability to speak. Her mother, though, had often told Ruth throughout her childhood that shooting stars were really melting ghost bodies, and it was bad luck to see them. If you did, that meant a ghost was trying to talk to you. To her mother, just about anything was a sign of ghosts. Broken bowls, barking dogs, phone calls with only silence or heavy breathing at the other end. Ray Bradbury was the keynote speaker the first time I came to Squaw Valley, which was 1973. Everybody smoked. Everybody was in black turtlenecks. Everybody was going through a divorce or contemplating one. Everyone was deeply depressed. And Ray Bradbury stood up here in his tennis whites and said, I love writing. Writing is fun. And <laughs> And for him, uh, the little section I'm going to read, you can see why it is. This is from Something Wicked Comes, and it's a small scene where two boys are watching a spooked carousel with a child on it slowly stop spinning in a small town. It's the first thing I know about shape changing, too. All the carnival lights blinked out. The carousel slowed itself through the cold night wind. We'll let Jim go. How many times that wheel did it go around? 60, 80, 90? How many times, said Jim's face, all nightmare, watching the dead carousel shiver and halt in the dead grass, a stopped world now which nothing, not their hearts, hands, or heads, could send back anywhere. They walked slowly to the merry-go-round, their shoes whispering. The shadowy figure lay on the near side on the plank floor, its face turned away. One hand hung off the platform. It did not belong to a child. It seemed a huge wax hand shriveled by fire. The man's hair was long, spidery white. It blew like milkweed in the breathing dark. They bent to see the face. The eyes were mummified shut. The nose was collapsed upon gristle. The mouth was a ruined white flower. The petals twisted into a thin wax sheath over the clenched teeth through which faint bubbling sighed. The man was small inside his clothes, small as a child, but tall, strung out, and old, so old, very old, not 90, not 100, no, not 110, but 120 or 130 impossible years old, 
Will touched. The man was cold as an albino frog. He smelled of moon swamps and old Egyptian bandages. He was something found in museums, wrapped in nicotine linens, sealed in glass. Wouldn't that make you happy to write? It's my honor and pleasure to read a little something from Sharon Olds. I had written an essay about one of her poems, which I love very much, called Station. And with great trepidation, although I see her almost every year here at the poetry conference, I had written to ask for permission to use the poem and to say what I'd said about the poem in an essay. And she wrote back on a postcard of herself on which she had um, drawn a mustache and a devil's um, halo with little, you know, things going up like this, and she said on the back, it was a little uh, plaque that said, official permission for you to do anything. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm going to read her beautiful poem, Topography, suggested to me by Lisa, who's just been such, done such a beautiful job of organizing this, and a, a great little tip of the hat to Max Bird on the subject of maps. This is uh, called Topography by Sharon Olds. After we flew across the country, we got into bed, laid our bodies delicately together like maps laid face to face, east to west, my San Francisco against your New York, your Fire Island against my Sonoma, my New Orleans deep in your Texas, your Idaho bright on my Great Lakes, my Kansas burning against your Kansas, your Kansas burning against my Kansas. Your Eastern Standard Time pressing into my Pacific Time. My Mountain Time beating against your Central Time. Your sun rising swiftly from the right, my sun rising swiftly from the left. Your moon rising slowly from the left, my moon rising slowly from the right until all four bodies of the sky burn above us, sealing us together. All our cities, twin cities, all our states united, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'm going to read from the novel Whisper by Carolyn Doty. Um, when I first came to Squaw Valley, Carolyn Doty ran the fiction program. She was you know, a moving force here for many years. And uh, she was the first person I met. And you know, I, I was so intimidated by everyone. And she was so irreverent. And it, was, it really was very grounding. I remember people were having a discussion about, you know, we were having the students about whether you should always be very literary or um, would you ever prostitute yourself literarily to make a whole bunch of money? And I remember Carolyn said, hell, we'd all prostitute ourselves if we could just figure out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved her. Um, this is a paragraph about a man who has a stroke. Just before he has a stroke, he starts thinking about a woman that he once loved, and he takes a walk to walk by the apartment building where she once lived. He is at the corner of Park and 90th when he looks up and she is standing there. My God, he says, Dorothea, is that you? She doesn't answer. She merely stops and looks into his eyes. I can't believe it, he says. I was just thinking about you. He reaches out for her hand, and she steps back away from him. Still, she is unable to speak. You look as lovely as ever, he says. You haven't aged a day. The image of her blurs before him, and for a minute he thinks his eyes have filled with tears. Please, he says, moving toward her, just take my hand for a moment. Now, she is pressed against the side of the building, and he can see she is frightened, but his arms and legs won't seem to move, and when he tries to tell her that it is all right, that he doesn't expect anything from her, he cannot form the words. The night grows darker now, and he cannot see her so well. It occurs to him that he has made a mistake, a terrible mistake, and that he has frightened a stranger, and he is certain this is true when she begins to scream. He hears the sound of her scream long after he can no longer see her, and then he feels her hand on his face and her lips to his ear. Jay, she whispers, Jay.
Hi, I'm Michael Jaime Becerra, and I'm here to read uh, Fear and Fame, a poem by Philip Levine. Half an hour to dress, wide rubber hip boots, gauntlets to the elbow, a plastic helmet like a knight's, but with a little glass window that kept steaming over, and a respirator to save my smoke-stained lungs. I would descend step by slow step into the dim world of the pickling tank, and there prepare the new solutions from the great carboys of acids lowered to me on ropes, all from a recipe I shared with nobody and learned from Frank O'Meara before he went off to the bars on Werner Highway to drink himself to death. A gallon of hydrochloric steaming from the wide glass mouth, a dash of pale nitric to bubble up, sulfuric to calm, metals for sweeteners, cleansers for salts until I knew the burning stew was done. Then to climb back, step by stately step, the adventurer returned to the ordinary blinking lights of the swing shift at Feinberg's and Breslin's first-rate plumbing and plating with a message from the kingdom of fire. Oddly enough, no one welcomed me back. And I'd stand fully, fully armored as the downpour of cold water rained down on me and the smoking traces puddled at my feet like so much milk and melting snow. Then to disrobe down to my work pants and shirt, my black street shoes and white cotton socks, to reassume my nickname, strap on my boulevard, screw back my wedding ring, and with tap water, gargle away the bitterness as best I could. For 15 minutes or more, I'd sit quietly off to the side of the world as the women polished the tubes and fixtures to a burnished purity, hung like Christmas ornaments on the racks, pulled steadily toward the tanks I'd cooked. Ahead lay the second cigarette held in a shaking hand as I took myself into the sickening heat to quell heat, a lunch of two Genoa salami sandwiches and Swiss cheese on heavy peasant bread baked by my Aunt Sippy, and a third cigarette to kill the taste of the others. Then to arise and dress again in the costume of my trade for the second time that night, stiffened by the knowledge that to descend and rise up from the other world merely once in eight hours is half of what it takes to be known among women and men. Thank you. There are two reasons I'm here at this conference. One is Oakley Hall, without whom there would be no conference. And the other is Rhoda Huffy, who wrote a very wonderful novel called The Hallelujah Side, which I was privileged to publish when I was running a small press some years ago. Rhoda had been a longtime participant here at SQUAW, and she suggested that I be invited, and I was, to my eternal uh, gratitude. Um, so here's the first paragraph of The Hallelujah Side with what uh, Oakley called one of the all-time best first sentences. It had been a second coming sky all day, which meant they might be in heaven by this evening. <laughs> Roxanne stood by the mirror trying to make spit curls. Stupidly, her red hair hung there, causing her to glare out at her sister, Colleen the Beautiful. Roxanne dropped the spit curl, which went straight, turned to the piano and hit high C. Then she walked her fingers on the white keys, uh, five notes up the scale and four notes down. Each rang. Over on the couch, Roxanne's mother, Zelda Fish, sneezed again, especially hard this time. Sister Fish had the flu, but if they went up, she would be cured instantly. Roxanne picked up her doll, Miss Jennifer Smith, and walked back and forth across the living room, back and forth, ready to go. It would happen in the twinkling of an eye, the dead rising first, then the saints going up to meet him in the air. No time to get your belongings. And I also want to slip in two lines from Oakley's great novel, Warlock. <clears throat> I guess I will be going along then. He picked up his hat from the table and went on outside into the star-filled dark. I had the great good, good fortune to win the lottery among the many people who hoped to be, to be able to read tonight from Robert Stone's work. I have chosen uh, from the opening, uh, three paragraphs from the opening, from the first chapter of Dog Soldiers, his second novel, which was published in 1974, six years after his first novel, A Hall of Mirrors. And for those who are at today's, this morning's panel um, on time travel, this is Robert Stone starting very much in the thick of the action and then pausing as necessary to let you know how this character got to where he is. 
There was only one bench in the shade, and Converse went for it, although it was already, already occupied. He inspected the stone surface for unpleasant substances, found none, and sat down. Beside him, he placed the oversized briefcase he had been carrying. Its handle shone with the sweat of his palm. He sat facing Tudor Street, resting one hand across the case and raising the other to his forehead to check the progress of his fever. It was Converse's nature to worry about his health. You learn uh, then that his uh, hand is sweating not just because of, of a fever, but because this briefcase is about to be filled with three kilos of heroin in the first drug deal he's ever undertaken. He pauses now to tell you how he came to be in Vietnam. He flew out of Oakland on the morning after their daughter's second birthday. In Saigon, Converse was able to extend his employment by taking over the positions of departing stringers and hustling a few of his own. And surely enough, the difficulties he had been experiencing with reality were in time obviated. One bright afternoon, near a place called Crec, Converse had watched with astonishment as the world of things transformed itself into a single overwhelming act of murder. In a manner of speaking, he had discovered himself. Himself was a soft, shellless, quivering thing encased in 160 pounds of pink, sweating meat. It was real enough. It tried to burrow into the earth. It wept. And then he confronts the, uh, the moral objections that might arise to selling heroin. <laughs> the vague dis dissatisfaction remained, and it was not loneliness or a moral objection. It was, of course, fear. Fear was extremely important to Converse. Morally speaking, it was the basis of his life. It was the medium through which he perceived his own soul, the formula through which he could, f could confirm his own existence. I am afraid, Converse reasoned, therefore I am. Uh, it's my privilege to read a paragraph from the work of the novelist Elizabeth Talent from her book, No One's a Mystery. It's not a long paragraph, but it demonstrates how a very talented writer can write a whole novel in one paragraph. For my 18th birthday, Jack gave me a five-year diary with a latch and a little key, light as a dime. I was sitting beside him scratching at the lock, which didn't seem to want to work, when he thought he saw his wife's Cadillac in the distance coming toward us. He pushed me down onto the dirty floor of the pickup and kept one hand on my head while I inhaled the musk of his cigarettes in the dashboard ashtray and sang along with Roseanne Cash on the tape deck. We'd been drinking tequila and the bottle was between his legs, resting up against his crotch, where the seam of his Levi's was bleached linen white, though the Levi's were nearly new. I don't know why his Levi's always bleached like that along the seams and at the knees. In a curve of cloth, his zipper glinted gold. <clears throat> From Oakley Hall's Warlock, Chapter 67, Journals of Henry Holmes, Good Pasture. It is four in the morning by my watch. Mine is the only light I can see, the scratching of my pen the only sound. Here, aside the dull and rusty razor's edge between midnight and morning, I am sick to the bottom of my heart. Where is Buck Slavin's bright future of faith, hope, and commerce? What is it even worth, after all? For if men have no worth, there is none anywhere. I feel very old, and I have seen too many things in my years, which are not so many. No, not even in my years, but in a few months, in this day. Outside there is only darkness, pitifully lit by the cold and disinterested stars, and there is silence throughout the town in which some men sleep and clutch their bedclothes of hope and optimism to them for warmth. But those I love more do not sleep and see no hope and suffer for those brave ones who will fall in hopeless effort for us all, whose only gift to us will be that we will grieve for them a little while. Those who see as I have come to see that life is only event and violence without reason or cause and that there is no end but the corruption and the mock of courage and hope. Is not the history of the world no more than a record of violence and death cut in stone? It is a terrible, lonely, loveless thing to know it and see, 
As I realize now, the doctor saw before me that the only justification is in the attempt, not in the achievement, for there is no achievement, to know that each day may dawn fair or fairer than the last and end as horribly wretched or more. Can those things that drive men to their ends ever be stilled? Or will they only thrive and grow and yet more hideously clash against the others so long as man himself is not stilled? Can I look out at these cold stars and this black sky and believe in my heart of hearts that it was this sky that hung over Bethlehem and that a star such as these stars glittered there to raise men's hearts to false hopes forever? This is the sky of Gethsemane and that of Bethlehem has vanished with its star. I'm uh, Lisa Rosenberg, and I have the privilege of reading from the monumental work of uh, Galway Cannell, uh, poet Gal Galway Cannell, and the poem is Blackberry Eating. I love to go out in late September among the fat, overripe, icy, black blackberries to eat blackberries for breakfast, the stalks very prickly, a penalty they earn for knowing the black art of blackberry making. And as I stand among them, lifting the stalks to my mouth, the ripest berries fall almost unbidden to my tongue as words sometimes do. Certain peculiar words like strengths or squinched many-lettered one-syllabled lumps which I squeeze, squinch open, and splurge well in the silent, startled, icy black language of blackberry eating in late September. Alice Adams was passionate, out outspoken, and inimitable. Uh, she's the author of many novels and short story collections. I particularly like the stories, which are wonderfully precise and deceptively simple or deceptively complex, whichever one means there's more going on than you think. Uh, I'm going to read a story from her collection, After You've Gone. The story is Fog. On an unspeakably cold and foggy night one November in San Francisco, something terrible happens to a woman named Antonia Love. She is a painter, middle-aged, recently successful, who has invited some people to her house for dinner, one of whom she has not met yet. But in the course of tearing greens into the salad bowl and simultaneously shooing off one of her cats, the old favorite who would like to knead on one of her new brown velvet shoes, Antonia, who is fairly tall, loses her balance and falls, skidding on a fragment of watercress and avoiding the cat but landing, bang, on the floor, which is Mexican tiled, blue and white. Hard. Antonia thinks she heard the crack of a bone. Just lying there for a moment, shocked, Antonia imagines herself sprawled, stuffed china-headed doll, her limbs all askew, awry. How incredibly stupid, how dumb she scolds herself. If I didn't want people to dinner, I just could have not asked them. And then, well, useless to blame myself. There are accidents. The point is, what to do now? You're kind of good. You're up here. I uh, volunteered to Lisa to read this because I thought it was very important for the name Ted Solotarov to be heard tonight. He was, an Im he was an important and singular editor. We don't have time to really honor him or his work, but he was devoted to writers and good writing, and he spent his life fighting for literature and against the corrosive destruction of celebrity and commercialism in every area of publishing. Some folks think he lost that battle, but I still go to work every day thinking otherwise. This is from a book of his. I think that Lisa said he may have delivered part of this talk here a few good voices in my head. In some, the gifted young writer needs to learn to trust the writing process itself 
and beyond that to love as well as hate it. For writing is not, of course, always stoop labor and second thoughts and struggling with one's tendencies toward negation and despair and accepting one's limits and limitations. There are the exhilarations of finding that the way ahead is opened overnight, that the character who had been so elusive has suddenly walked into the room and started talking, that the figure has been weaving itself into the carpet. But if the gifted young writer persists in believing that for him the latter condition should be the normal ones, otherwise known as inspiration or natural talent, he will likely decide after a few years that he fatally lacks one or both and that he has developed writer's block. And he may well turn to a more sensible or less threatening mode of expression, such as teaching or editing. What the, what the gifted young writer needs most is time, lots of it. Bobby Ann Mason says that when she is asked by writing students how to get published, she feels like saying, don't sweat it for 20 years or so. It takes experience at life before you really know what you're doing. She began writing fiction in 1971, and after she got out of graduate school for the next five years, she wrote in a desultory way, trying, finding it hard to get focused. In 1976, she finished a novel about a 12-year-old girl growing up in Western Kentucky who was addicted to Nancy Drew novels. It took another two years before I began to find my true subject, which was to write my, about my roots and the kind of people I'd known, but from a contemporary perspective. It mainly took a lot of living to get to that point. I'd come from such a sheltered and isolated background that I had to go through culture shock by living for years in the North to see the world of Mayfield, Kentucky in a way that I could write about as I do now in a kind of exile. Also, it took me until I was in my 30s to get enough detachment and objectivity to see that many of these people back home were going through culture shock too. My own sense of things is that young fiction writers should disconnect the necessity to write fiction from what it is often confused with and by the desire to publish it. This keeps one's mind where it belongs on one's own work and away from where it doesn't on the marketplace, which is next to useless, and on writers who are succeeding, which is discouraging. Comparisons with other writers should be inspiring, otherwise they're invidious. I sure do miss uh, Jim Houston this year. Um, I'm gonna read a poem uh, called Bus Stop by Donald Justice, uh, who taught up here uh, back in the uh, black turtleneck days that Molly Giles mentioned. Bus Stop. Lights are burning in quiet rooms where lives go on resembling ours. The quiet lives that follow us, these lives we lead but do not own. Stand in the rain so quietly when we are gone so quietly and the last bus comes, letting dark umbrellas out, black flowers, black flowers, and lives go on, and lives go on like sudden lights at street corners or like the nights in quiet rooms, left on for hours, burning, burning. I'm Michael Urban, and I'm reading from the screenplay Harold and Maude by Colin Higgins. Interior, din, day. Close-up of Mrs. Chasen as she first sees the body. She is slightly startled. Mrs. Chasen's POV day, a long shot of the room where Harold, a young man about 20, hangs suspended from the ceiling with the curtain rope tied around his grotesquely broken neck. Medium shot, Mrs. Chasen. She stares at the body for several beats and then, with weary exasperation, sits down at the desk and dials a telephone. As she waits for an answer, she looks up at the hanging body. I suppose you think this is very funny, Harold. Close up, Harold. The rope chokes his throat, his eyes bulge, his tongue hangs out. Medium shot, Mrs. Chasen. Her party answers, and she speaks into the phone. Hello? Faye, darling, be a dear. And cancel my appointment with René this afternoon. You know he'll be furious. But I've had the most trying day, and with guests coming this evening, would you, oh, that's sweet, tell him I promise to be in Tuesday for rinse. Thank you, Faye, your darling. Yes, yes, bye. She replaces the receiver stands up, takes her purse and gloves, and leaves the room saying, dinner at eight, Harold. At the door, she stops and turns, and try to be a little more vivacious. <laughs> Close up, Harold. 
quick cut of his ashen face as we hear the door close. I'm going to read uh, from a story by Leonard Michaels, one of my favorite writers. Um, the story is called Cryptology, and it's one of a, a group of stories uh, called the, the Nachman stories, and they're all about a character named Nachman. They're among the last things that he was working on, I guess, before he died. <clears throat> and to my mind, I think it's some of the best writing that he did, which is both kind of sad and really inspiring. Um, so here's the, just the opening of the story called Cryptology. Nachman had arrived in New York the previous evening and was walking along Fifth Avenue when she came up behind him calling, Nachman, Nachman, is that you? He looked back and saw a woman shining with happiness for which he apparently was responsible. His mere existence had turned on her lights. Nachman kissed her on both cheeks and then they stood chatting at the corner of 42nd Street, the millions passing with the minutes. When Nachman parted from her, he was holding her business card and the key to her apartment in Chelsea, having promised to join her and her husband for dinner that evening. If you arrive before us, just wait in the apartment, she had said. It's been so many years, Nachman. I'm Helen Ferris now. Do you know my husband, Benjamin Strong Ferris? He's a lawyer, also a name in computer science and cryptology. I assume you're in New York for the cryptology conference. Benjamin goes there to find geniuses like you for his company. As a matter of fact, Nachman had said, but she was still talking. It would be wonderful if we could have a drink, just you and me, and remember the old days, but I have to run. There will be time to talk later. I can't tell you how glad I am that we ran into each other. Actually, Nachman, I followed you for about five blocks. I couldn't believe it was you. Benjamin will be delighted. He's heard me talk about you so often. Should I cook or should we have dinner out? Oh, let's decide later. When she had stopped talking, Nachman said he didn't know the name Benjamin Strong Ferris, and he didn't consider himself a genius. I'm a good mathematician, he added. Good is rare enough. This is from a uh, personal essay uh, by my friend Jerry Haslam. The piece is called uh, Reflections from an Irrigation Ditch. That day, the water ran crystalline between the rows of potatoes. My bare feet were sunken in one channel's soft bottom between furrows while that cool, clear current pooled brown smoke from them, flowing parallel to other mini streams toward a far, perpendicular ditch that would catch the runoff we call tailwater and channel it along the country road toward a reservoir at the property's corner. I was eight years old then, and I pretended those artificial currents were racing, choosing a favorite, the one already ahead, and urging it toward distant victory, then exalting. My Uncle Pete straddled a row next to me, a shovel leaning against one shoulder, his feet planted in two streams. He reached down and pulled a young potato from the earth, washed it in the clear flow, then opened his pocket knife and sliced me a sample. Try it, Jerry, he urged. It's sweet as all get out. We were standing only a short mile from where the foothills of the Tehachapi Mountains began sealing the southern end of California's Great Central Valley, near the point where desiccated Caliente Creek slipped from the high country to curl around those same foothills and to fade almost unnoticed onto cultivated land, and where it still occasionally and unpredictably reminded farmers of its existence with a stunning winter flood. West of us, the apparently flat terrain gradually, ever so gradually, sloped agricultural patch after agricultural patch until it was lost in shimmering heat waves that hid distant Bakersfield. I accepted the proffered peace a little reluctantly. It might be a trick since my uncle had already began initiating me in the rough world of masculine joshing. Finally, I bit into it and immediately made a face. To my palate, spoiled by Saturday matinee candy, the potato sliver tasted starchy and bland. What's wrong, he asked. It, takes, it tastes crappy. Toleration of such mild profanity was another aspect of our growing male camaraderie. My uncle's lined, leathery face smiled then, and he propped a thick slice into his own mouth and crunched it. You'll learn, he said. There's nothing better than something fresh out of the ground. Nothing better. He was not an especially articulate man, but on this subject, his words were unambiguous and as clear as the water in which we stood. That's what I think of when I think of 
Jerry's incredible body of work capturing the people and places of, uh, of the Central Valley, right? Prose as clear as uh, mountain water and stories that are, uh, how did he put it? As sweet as all get out. Hi, I'm Jane Vandenberg. I'm um, reading. I want to introduce myself to Al. I do that every time. Al. You do. <laughs> he says, I've met you a hundred times. Um, I want to read something from Gina Berrialt. Um, interestingly to me, Gina didn't really identify herself very much as a California writer, nor as a Jew, nor as a woman was really, and the people, the writers that she most identified with, or as in this story, it's the tea ceremony, she is actually has dedicated it to her true friend, Isaac Babel, in his basement. Of course, Isaac Babel wasn't alive when she wrote it, but it sort of doesn't make a difference for us, those of us who are involved in this conversation. And um, I mean, we could, I feel that we could be swept by waves of grief over those we've lost. But because they were writers, we have their voices now. And um, it is part of a great conversation. And it's the, this um, noble calling, I think, that, that brings us here. This um, story, the tea ceremony, is about perfection. And in it, the girl who um, is in a very meager situation in any place, but it happens to be Los Angeles, and this story actually is autobiographical, um, is, is shown the tea ceremony by this teacher of hers at school who chooses the most beautiful girl to help with the tea ceremony because it's all about perfection. And the girl in the story knows that she will never be that beautiful girl who's chosen to participate in this absolutely beautiful ritual. Nights at home, I thought about that tea ceremony. My teacher, if my teacher were ever to visit my family, something she'd never do, but something I feared anyway, she'd know the worst if she came at summer, supper time. Her suspicions about us, and I knew she had some, would be confirmed before her eyes. Other families sat down together while each member of the, my family ate apart, a family askew, a family alone in a rain-stained bungalow in the weeds, faded curtains from our last house that didn't fit the windows of this one, and my parents' bed, a sagging fold-out Davenport, my brother, who strode the streets all day, and besieged our mother with dreams of fabulous wealth, ate by himself like a lone and hungry wolf, the first to be served by my sister. Our mother, who was served next, who ate more gracefully than anybody I'd ever seen, was going blind and sat with a dish in her lap and did not know exactly where in the dish to place her spoon. Next, my sister and I sat down together, eating our supper just to get it over with, not talking, each knowing enough about what was in the other's unhappy heart. So afraid of making mistakes, my sister would not even be offered a chair where she could sit and watch the tea ceremony. My father came from a long way on the clanking streetcar from the city, from his cluttered little office and he entered quietly and did not sit down to eat until he'd kissed our mother gently, lovingly on the top of her head. He placed only one thing at a time on his plate and he ate slowly and his shirt was white, washed and ironed by my sister and our mother called him noble. My father, I thought, might possibly be acceptable at some celestial tea ceremony in some far distant time. One evening, coming in the door, he caught me doing something I had never done before, kneeling at my mother's slippered feet, begging her to tell me that someday I'd be somebody. Tell me, tell me, I pleaded, 
and she waved her spoon over my head and said that I would. My father must have known more than my mother did what I meant by a somebody, a somebody out in the world who'd redeem our entire family. Back in kindergarten, the wise, the last one always. 25 of these uh, 40 years that we're commemorating this evening uh, of the Squaw Valley community of writers, <clears throat> I have been here. The late James D. Houston and I calculated that if we put all those weeks together, I think he was also here about 25 years, we'd have six months straight here in Squaw Valley. One Saturday some years ago, it's hard to believe, uh, but there was a time when prose writers and screenwriters and poets all coexisted in the same time frame. And then they drifted apart. And in that drifting, um, into that drifting, I was invited quite suddenly one year. Brett uh, placed a phone call to me on a Saturday afternoon, pretend it's yesterday at around two o'clock in the afternoon. And she said, Al, Yusuf Komanyaka can't make it. He's going through a bitter divorce, one of those divorces that Molly Giles alluded to. Could you stand in for him? And it just so happened that I was free. I could. So uh, I made it over here uh, Sunday morning, just in time for the first workshop. And it was an, a, a very uh, pleasant surprise. I don't know if you are aware of the format that the poets follow. They have to produce a new poem every day. That is not only the enrollees or the people enrolled in the workshop, but the instructors as well. And to my surprise, I found that they lived better than the prose writers. Under the savvy supervision of, uh, 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 ooh, who am I thinking of? You just read his poem. Galway Cannell, very savvy man with money. Uh, we had condos over here with jacuzzis and all this kind of stuff. And I was living, I was living, and we got paid more. And I was living across the hall from uh, Robert Haas, and each morning uh, we would dash off to our workshops, having uh, completed our poems, and Bob would come out with that frown that he always has, you know, in the middle of his, his uh, forehead. And I said, uh, how's your work going here? And he said, oh, Al, I'm not happy with the things that I'm doing at this uh, uh, conference, but every one of those poems appeared in his next book. <laughs> this is from Yusuf Komanyaka's uh, first book. Uh, he, had stopped, um, he had stopped reading it for a time because he didn't want to be uh, labeled a, a Vietnam War poet, but I told him I love this poem, and he started back reading it again, so uh, I'm gonna read it. It's called Tudo Street, Yusuf Komunyaka. Music divides the evening. I close my eyes and can see men drawing lines in the dust. America pushes through the membrane of mist and smoke. And I'm a small boy again in Bogalusa. White only signs and Hank Snow. But tonight, I walk into a place where bar girls fade like tropical birds. When I order a beer, the mama-san behind the counter acts as if she can't understand, while her eyes skirt each white face as Hank Williams calls from the psychedelic jukebox. We have played Judas, where only machine gun fire brings us together. Down the street, Black GIs hold to their turf also. An off-limits sign pulls me deeper into alleys as I look for a softness behind these voices wounded by their beauty and war. Back in the bush at Dakto and Kisan, we fought the brothers of these women we now run to hold in our arms. There's more than a nation inside us, 
as black and white soldiers touch the same lovers minutes apart, tasting each other's breath without knowing these rooms run into each other like tunnels leading to the underworld. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>